Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Raina Lipsitz. Raina, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Raina Lipsitz, and very happy to be here. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. So we're going to be talking about your new book, which came out last year from Verso, The Rise of a New Left, and the subtitle is How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics. Um, so congratulations on the book. And thank you. I should say we, we knew each other just a little bit in college. Um, it's true. And well, what were the origins of deciding that this this was a book as opposed to some other, you know, I know you write a lot of magazine pieces. Sure. How, how did this come to be a book and like a coherent thing? So it well, <laughs> I'm flattered that you think it's coherent. That's, that's good <laughs> news to me. Um, I think that what happened is that I got the opportunity to interview Alexandria Ocasio Cortez um, twice for the Nation magazine, and after I did those interviews, one was about a week before she won the primary, and then one was after she'd won the primary, but before she was officially sworn in as a Congresswoman, and so. The original concept really was to do a book that was more tightly focused on her as a person. And then, um, funnily enough, there turned out to already be about seven books in the works that were about <laughs> AOC uh, or had some variation of, you know, the AOC generation in the title. So I talked about it with my Verso editor. And for a number of reasons, I we kind of decided to shift the focus away from her as a person, as a personality, and make it kind of broader. And one of the reasons I wanted to do that was because I really was more interested in the people on the ground who are fueling this kind, of, this rise of a new left, and not not as much the political celebrities. Although she was a very per interesting person to meet, and um, I I have you know tremendous interest in and respect for her and and people like Bernie Sanders and all of these sort of major national figures but i wanted to write a book that was more about the the people on the ground mm -hmm. that's interesting because one of the questions i wanted to discuss was sort of like you know what's the interplay between individual charismatic people leaders versus like larger forces unfolding and how do you know if if the charismatic leader doesn't bubble up from the bottom uh like how does that change the movement okay so so you met aoc before she won the primary in 2018. Was it Crowley? Was that the name of the? Yes. Yeah. The Before sitting representative. Joe Crowley. Right. And she's obviously become a huge star since then. You, what struck you about her when you met her the first time? Um, she, well, she's about a little less than a decade younger than I am, I guess, than we are. Um, and she is really, really poised. She struck me as just unusually calm and confident and uh, um, unusually politically gifted, really. I mean, that's sort of what people said, I think, about uh, JFK at the time. And she she really just has tremendous political skills. She's very fast on her feet. She can answer questions. There's no pause. There's no hesitation. And she um, is just really, really sharp and impressive in that way. And the people in her office, as I think I wrote in the book, were clearly just completely enamored of her. She has this this uh, tremendous ability to inspire people and attract 
devote, devoted staff members. Mm-mm. Okay, so stepping back a little bit, um, there was sort of a hinge point in late 2008, early 2009 with the mm-hmm. uh, financial crisis and the Great Recession and Obama's election. And there were sort of two, a left and a right movement that emerged reacting to that. And the right movement was the Tea Party. And right. people don't talk about the Tea Party that much anymore, but they've sort of like taken over the GOP. And Trump is very much, he wasn't a Tea Party guy, but like Trumpism is sort of an outgrowth of various Tea Party movements. And then the yeah. left movement was Occupy, or at least the main left movement was Occupy. And I remember thinking at the time, like, especially after the GOP did so well in the 2010 election, this is like the the left once again, like shooting itself in the foot. Like the GOP is like on the march. These crazies are like, you know, 80 of them just got elected to Congress. And meanwhile, like left activists are like sitting in the cold in parks and like, you know, discussing like the rules about which peanut butter jar to use and you know doing this like people's microphone thing where they're like it just it just seemed like such a like waste of energy and everything and so it sort of fizzled away um and you like you would think or i don't know if you would think it seemed like you had this huge um example of like the capital class like royally screwing up and then not getting punished and then the country is much worse off because of their mistakes and then the like political reaction to that was like hard right. And that didn't, right. you know, that was strange. And then fast forward to 2016, in the aftermath of Trump's election and Bernie's campaign and his, you know, failure to win the nomination and Hillary's defeat, there was this huge like change, like energy shift, like tons of people suddenly got interested in far left politics for the first time. And it was, maybe it was like a holdover from the um, 2008, 2009 time or something. So I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, but it's, it seems somewhat strange that like Trump, like Trump's awfulness is what inspired a lot of young people to like get involved in politics and especially socialist politics. But like Trump was basically a down the line Republican on economic issues and even was like somewhat softer than like the Paul Ryan wing because he realized that cutting social security and Medicare would be bad politics. So too he, far. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. he should, he because sh- he shied away from that, but like, it wasn't the, so Trump was, was more like a cultural shock, I think than like an economic shock, but then that like 2016 is, is like the turning point and, and Bernie plays into this as well. I don't even know what, where I'm going with this question, but it's like... Well, I, I, I think if I can, not to talk over you, but I, in, I, I mean, yeah, no, you made a lot of good points. And I think one thing that came up in my book, especially when I was speaking with um, Jonathan Smucker, who runs uh, Pennsylvania Stands Up, a group in, in Pennsylvania that he and his wife co-founded. And something that we were discussing is that a lot of these people who became sort of drivers of the Bernie campaigns, particularly in 2016, but also in 2020, were veterans of Occupy, and some of them were people who thought, um, who had learned some lessons from Occupy, right? So a lot of what you were just describing, that there was a, the movement itself, I think people did still, they saw a lot of value in, and and it did have an impact on our culture. I mean, it introduced phrases like the 1%, and it did sort of lay a, mm-hmm. a groundwork for uh, 
framing and for a sort of understanding, a class analysis that then people embrace maybe several years later. So part of it, I think, is that the left was during Occupy, during that time you're describing, was watching the right seize actual power uh, within our government and thinking, oh, shit, we have to catch up to that. You know, maybe right. we need to uh, also intervene in the electoral realm and also brought in our our um, idea of what a cohesive movement is and how we're going to go about, you know, enacting the policies we want to see. I do agree with you that, you know, Trump was a a bizarre figure, a galvanizing figure for a lot of reasons. And I do think that he actually in some ways was not as bad as as his predecessors in the Tea Party movement, right? I mean, he didn't, certainly wasn't as effective in certain ways. He didn't get, uh, he wasn't able to undo you know, social security. I don't, he didn't even try to undo. No, he, and he's weighed in to actually just in the past week or so saying it would be, you know, the, the people who are now in charge of the house GOP are basically like the people who came up through the tea party and their right. And their only agenda seems to be like what the tea party agenda was exactly 12 years ago. And Trump is like, no, don't cut. Cause Trump, I mean, there's so many funny things about Trump, but one is that because he's not a politician, he doesn't have any actual beliefs. He's just like more of like a normal person where the, right. the normal person would be like, yeah, don't cut Medicare and Social Security. Everyone likes that. Whereas like the ideologues yeah. and the GOP are like, no, we must cut it because the takers are overwhelming the makers. But he's just like, no, that's stupid. Right. And I think I think Trump, I mean, as we've seen in the last few years, I think Trump actually has a better sense than most people in his party of what is popular, what yeah. people want. Um, you know, it certainly was the most popular Republican, I think still is the most popular Republican since Reagan, uh, by polling. And, mm-hmm. you know, so he obviously hit on, on a winning formula or at least one that won in 2016. Um, right. I do. And I, just to return to some of what you were saying before, just in sort of partial defense of Occupy, I do think that some of what they were doing, it was about, it was consistent with the politics, right? It was, they wanted to be leaderless. They wanted to be um, more democratic and actual democracy is uh, it's difficult to do and it and it doesn't yield this kind of charismatic leader figure that you were talking about if you're really listening to everybody and doing things by consensus it's a harder way to run an organization and it has its its pluses and its minuses and then I think that the I think part of why Trump was so galvanizing is that younger people and people who'd been exposed in or involved with Occupy saw him as somebody who could have been avoided, should have been avoided, certainly shouldn't have won in 2016 and would not have won if there were a functioning and effective Democratic Party. Right. And this is the Bernie would have won meme that um, emerged after the 2016 general, which I agreed with. But I also thought anyone aside from Clinton would have won, like Martin O'Malley would have won or and all, you know, the other, there was like three or four other guys who were sort of no names who faded right. away. It was just Clinton's unique toxicity and political, um, you know, total like tone deafness um, is one of the, you know, is the main reason Trump won, I think. And he, he won in this very like close triple bank shot sort of way. Okay. Let's, the reason I maybe brought some of this stuff up is like, like were these things sort of historically inevitable and in some not not like fully inevitable, but like okay, let's say Bernie Sanders had never been born, 
Um, and then Trump still, you know, so then Trump won, but there was no like strong left challenge and not this movement identified with him personally that galvanized. Or let's say Hillary Clinton had, you know, gone to campaign in Wisconsin and, and like right. flipped the three states and had narrowly won, you know, what would have happened to the movement that Bernie helped inspire? Like, so it was, was it just like this weird historical contingency based on the bizarre figure of Trump that caused these things to happen? Or is there some, cause I don't know. I feel like the Marxist understanding of history is more like forces dialectics and not like one important person is right. The key, right. the key figure inspiring people. Um, yeah, I certainly don't think it was only Trump. I, I mean, he's the most visible uh, kind of symbol of all of that. But I think what I say in the book is that there are a lot of generational shifts and people our age and younger than us are were fed up on a number of levels. I, I interviewed so many people who are younger than me for this book, and it was really striking how much they'd been through, right? They'd been through two um, entirely distinct cycles of Black Lives Matter, where it was like, you know, 2013 to 2016, roughly, and then a whole new wave in 2020. And they'd been through two major global recessions. They'd been through a pandemic and a worsening climate crisis. And as we're seeing today, you know, really disgusting and horrifying levels of, of gun violence, which actually have been pretty stable for a long time, but are bad, are really bad mm -hmm. in, in this country. So I think people were watching their lives just sort of get worse and worse in by these really material measures. A lot of people are are now you know, for the first time ever going to be worse off than their parents are already worse off than their parents can't afford homes, can't afford to have children, um, have no stability in their jobs or their careers are sort of, you know, stuck in, in various dead end positions or failing to advance in a way that keeps pace with inflation or just sort of their general expectation of, of the trajectory their lives would have. So that kind of frustration I think is really what was fueling it, where the people watching things kind of fall apart and watching the ways in which their lives were deviating from the lives they expected and in some ways were promised, right? I mean, you you do grow up hearing if you go to college and you work really hard mm -hmm. and you, you get an education and you pursue a certain path, you're going to be all set. You're going to have a good life. And that is like increasingly not true. It's not true for a lot of people. It was not true for a lot of people before. And it's extra not true for people now. So I think that's a, a large part of it. Mm -hmm. So how, how much credit do you give to Bernie specifically? Like, let's say Bernie had stayed the mayor of Burlington, Vermont, um, you know, for 50 years or whatever, or, or had become like a professor, at, you know, Middlebury or something. And, ha and there hadn't been that galvanizing campaign and movement. Do you think things would have played out very differently? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think that those forces I just described would still be there and that frustration would still mm -hmm. be there. Uh, you know, that's another thing I discussed actually with Jonathan Smucker in the book was that the idea of how important are candidates. And we were talking in the context of Jess King's race in Pennsylvania. She was a basically a Bernie crat who ran in a deep red district and she came very close, but then was redistricted and then lost by a large margin ultimately. But she was a really great candidate. And so kind of personally compelling that she was able to make inroads in a really conservative part of Pennsylvania in a way that nobody thought that most Democrats, 
mainstream Democrats could not do and hadn't done. And mm-hmm. she was able to do that. And Jonathan said, and I agree with this, you know, it really isn't just the platform. You do need that kind of magic, that alchemy that that Bernie had, that people like Bernie and Jess King and AOC had of being personally, I, you know, maybe likable is the wrong word because plenty of people did not find Bernie likable. <laughs> I mean, I did, but, you know, a lot of people <laughs> didn't. Um, but, you know, something compelling, something that people want to watch you or something they find interesting about you. And that that's a very difficult, um, you can't, you can teach some of those skills, you can't teach all of them. So, you know, it's, it's a real, it's a question that we're still, I think, kind of figuring out as a movement that how do you get, and, and DSA in, in New York, New York City Democratic Socialists of America, I think has made really impressive progress in, in identifying people who are really particularly good candidates who are from the born and raised in the districts they're trying to represent, are people of color, have interesting life stories, are yet are able to speak in a compelling way. And that's not an accident. I mean, they've really been made a deliberate effort to recruit those people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a tough thing to to find. I mean, it's not, it's just not something that everybody, no matter how well-meaning and ideologically consistent they are, uh, has or can do. Yeah, it's some factor of charisma or something that yeah it does seem yeah you, know, you can't manufacture you can't fake it <laughs> and you can no. you can try and some people seem to have it and others don't. Um, so the title is the rise of a new left. How how is this different from various old versions of the left in American history? So you know, as many people pointed out when I when the book came out the you know the new left was a phrase that came out in the 60s in reference to a group of young student radicals at the time i should know more about that than i than i actually do i'd say that the sort of biggest difference now is that the left that exists today is trying to marry that economic and class analysis to an a kind of identitarian i don't want to say identitarian that's the wrong word but a focus on representation and inclusion that didn't really exist in a previous era. So people like um, the leaders of Justice Democrats, for example, they're walking this kind of funny line of being, they were very pro-Bernie, they were very much aligned with the Bernie campaign, but they talked a lot about how we need fewer old white men in government and we need, you know, we need more women and people of color. And that's not necessarily a contradiction you could say like in a given field bernie still represented the interests of women and people of color better than anybody else that's what i believe and i agree with them about that but it sounds sort of inconsistent to a lot of people from the outside and i and it's something that we're still kind of figuring out right like what does that actually mean does it mean you can never have white male candidates i don't really think that's what it means but it does mean that there's a new a new focus on inclusion and really making sure that everybody um, has an opportunity to lead and to be part of a a recognized face of a movement. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about Justice Democrats and that group and how that emerged? Because you interviewed the founder or co-founder of of that group. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They're, I mean, they're really interesting people. They're all younger than me, but actually not that much younger. They're all like, uh, you know, five to seven years younger or something like that. And they 
they came out of the Bernie campaign. I mean, that's where many of them met and they were trying to seize the moment. And I think they have in a lot of ways. I mean, they've had a lot, a decent amount of electoral success, uh, put a, a small, but a very small, but important sort of group of people in Congress, um, known as the squad. And I think that what's really interesting to me is that they are being presented as this kind of these new radicals. And a lot of what they talk about is New Deal era politics. It's just basically we need FDR back. We need uh, massive federal investments in things like combating climate change and creating a federal jobs program and that sort of thing. But it's really it's a return to um, a time a time that we've seen that we where this country was able to do those things did put in a massive amount of public money into things like public works programs and got people back to work and got the country back on its feet. They're marrying it to these new set of concerns, right? Like they have the Green New Deal, which is specifically about climate. Um, but I think it's very impressive what they've done. I think it's very smart what they're doing. I don't know. I have some concerns about how, and you know, un until there's a critical mass in Congress, it, it doesn't feel like um, well, I guess it could go one of two ways. Either they need to get way more people in Congress and have a a serious block, a serious um, squad block that's more than, I guess, I think it's now eight people. And they might do that. They might be on track to do that. Or they're going to have to get better at sort of freedom caucus, you know, adopt the tactics of the hard right and uh, more successfully and effectively pressure Democratic leadership on their issues. Yeah. And I saw at least one or two people saying, you know, when the Freedom Caucus holdouts did this huge thing where they refused to vote for Kevin McCarthy and it went to like 14 ballots or whatever, they were very intransigent. I saw some people saying, you know, the, the left should have done this in 2018 with Pelosi and like put some real demands in and, um, and other people pushing back saying, well, you know, this has made like the GOP look like a laughing stock and that they don't know what the hell they're doing and they can't, you know, five extreme people now seemingly have the whip hand in the Congress. So I guess what well, it depends on how <laughs> what the House Republicans are able to do at this point to see whether the right. strategy of a very small extreme group using it, you know, throwing its weight around, whether that I works mean, I, or not. Yeah. And I, I also think it depends on the demands, right? I mean, what do the extremists and the GOP want? They want to gut Social Security. That's not a popular, that's not something that the majority of the American people want. And the more they hear what that actually means, the less they want it. Now, the difference with the left is that the things the quote unquote extreme left wants are extremely popular. They have very widespread public support. And, you know, people do want that stuff. So I think that that's a very key difference. And I think that if you did it skillfully, you could um, exercise the same kind of power that the right has in Congress, but do it in a way that has public buy-in, public support. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about the Green New Deal and the framing around that, the branding, and also what has transpired over the past two years. And so the name... So, you know, Biden had the Build Back Better agenda, and that was radically pared down, and a lot of it was thrown out. But a lot of the climate stuff stuck around and was in this 
final bill that they did, you know, manage to pass late mm-hmm. in the game that I think they called the Inflation Reduction Act. But it seems like, and I don't know the exact details because there were so many changes, it was so confusing. But it seemed like this was a big investment in green energy technologies and it included some, you know, to get Joe Manchin on board, it had to include some SOPs to like West Virginia coal interests and other, um, right. you know, dirty energy interests. But like, how are the the people who pushed for the Green New Deal, how are they thinking about that legislation, which was, you know, came out after or was passed after your book was published. So you weren't able to uh, cover it and, and sort of happened extremely quickly. And everyone thought that it was all that it was sunk and that it, like, it came together very quickly. It was passed and. Right. So are the Green I, New Deal people happy to take like a half, half a half loaf or are they saying this was just, you know, this was nothing? I think that the, the best statement I read in the wake of all of that was sun, the statement that Sunrise put out, which is, um, and Sunrise is very closely aligned with Justice Democrats. A lot of the people in, in leadership are the same or have relationships with each other. So those groups sort of came out of the same uh, movement and and um, small cadre of, of leadership. But my point is that they issued a statement that said, this is historic, it's major investments in combating climate change. It's very important that it got through and it's really insufficient. And here's why. And they kind of laid out why. And they said, and this is what we need to keep fighting for. I, you know, I was I personally was tremendously disappointed in how Build Back Better went because in the initial, um, I mean, it's hard to, the timeline got really confusing in a lot of ways, but what got cut out of it, a lot of it was, you know, childcare. It was things that people really need and that we've been talking about and fighting for uh, literally for decades, literally for 50 years. So I think what got cut out of that bill is it it's really a shame and it's really despicable however yes i think also at the same time the left has to take wins when we get them and you can claim uh you can say here's what we did that was really good and important and that wouldn't have gotten done without us um and also here's why we still need to keep pushing and here's where we need to keep pushing right okay I think the, you know, the Green New Deal is a good, when they when it first emerged, that it's a good name and like the branding is good. I think the right sort of did do a pretty effective job at like demonizing that term in particular and making it about like, they're going to make hamburgers illegal or, or something <laughs> like that. Um, you know, who told me they would make hamburgers illegal was uh, somebody who worked for Andrew Cuomo. Um, <laughs> that was a, a, like four years ago, I guess there was a reporting on the climate bill in New York state. And uh-huh. his, uh, his spokesman said, you know, we can't get to a place where we're banning hamburgers or something. Which- well, I mean, Cuomo did have a very effective communications team that helped him <laughs> dominate the state for. And he loved a, a right wing do- GOP talking point. A dozen that was years. A big, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a good slogan. I think probably the average American has a positive association with the new deal. And, um, but it, it is sort of like vague still in a sense that if someone hears about it, they're not quite sure what it means. And maybe the GOP was able to take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So another slogan that emerged in 2020 was defund the police. And that has not happened. And maybe it's no. impossible for it to happen. Um, yeah. How do you see that movement 
playing out or what are the failures, the partial success of a green, you know, green energy stuff on the federal level and then total non-success or even reversing progress on, you know, police brutality stuff, um, like right. Eric Adams winning, <laughs> a former cop winning the mayoralty of New York City, stuff like that. How do you see that playing out? And was this messaging? Was it just more entrenched interest? I think it, yeah, I, I mean, I think it was a lot of things. I do, I think that the messaging piece of it was a little overemphasized. I mean, to me, it's not, you know, you can make anything sound bad or good. And it's, and I, I am not, I'm not saying that it doesn't matter at all, but I think it matters less than people think it does. I don't think it's the phrase that's the problem. I think you have to just really build, um, public support in a way that is very tedious and time consuming and, and frankly hard to do. And I mean, the ground work was not there. There was this mass um, outpouring of, of rage and grief after George Floyd, and, and that's completely justifiable. And we know where that came from. We know why that happened and why millions and millions of people were in the street. But it was not a programmatic uh, movement. There was not a real coherent set of demands. There was no group that was definably or obviously or everyone agreed was in charge of, of, of those uh, mm -hmm. protests. And that's partly why it didn't it didn't lead to any federal major federal legislation and why in some ways in some cities you could say, oh, now there's been a little bit of a backlash. But the backlash is because people do think we got that done. I mean, we didn't. If you look into it, everybody, you know, everyone who like reads anything about it sees that we a few city, you know, a few cities voted to cut funding. Most of that funding was restored or sort of, you know, moved around. And I think uh, I think it was AOC who called it fuzzy math. And that's what a lot of cities did. They said, we're, we're going to pretend to cut it here. We're going to put it back here. Um, police unions are, are enormously powerful in this country. That's not going to go away overnight. Um, it's an organizing challenge. And so I think that in a way, the fact that there's a backlash now is evidence of the success of at least the partial success that people think that the left is some kind of all powerful uh, movement that did in fact slash funding from the police. And, you know, we have to make these things a reality, but we also have to, you know, we also have to communicate with people while we're doing it and bring them along and make sure that the public support is there so that when, and if we can actually enact the policy, um, people understand why they and they support it yeah i mean from my perspective it was i mean the spring summer 2020 protests were you know semi-spontaneous and basically leaderless and you know an amorphous organization called black lives matter was sort of in charge but not really um and so it's not surprising that a inchoate um mass movement that sprung up quickly you know is not like poll testing uh, various slogans and stuff like that, or maybe quick also quickly fades away. Um, but yeah, I think to fund the P so like, like I said, Green New Deal, I think is a good slogan and they've had some partial success. Whereas I think defund the police is a bad slogan because I, I don't think the average person, well, it's, it's, you know, any slogan you have to like clarify after the fact, like we're not fully defunding, we're like defunding 
so, sir, but like, so that's a bad slogan. If you're like asterisk, here's the explanation. And I think the average American probably has more positive than ne- negative feelings about the cops or knows cops or has cops in their family. Well, and- there's, I mean, there's a huge, just sorry to talk over you. Sure, I just, go ahead. There, there is a huge racial divide on that, right? Like mo- most white people do trust the police. Most black people don't or don't, you know, and black people have a lot of worse contact and worse experiences with the police in general. I, right. I but actually, a, oh, sorry, go ahead. But a lot of, I mean, the, the groups that need effective, like professional, competent, non-corrupt policing are like poor people in cities. Like they, yeah. they are the people who suffer the most from the depredations of the police themselves and uh, as being victims of crime and, and so forth. And so like, you know, Adams won the black vote in the mayor election and he's a former cop. So, right. so I think, so sometimes the defund the police people are, are the white people who don't really have a lot of contact with the police. And if the police disappeared, their lives would not really change that much. Whereas if the police disappeared from a lot of like cities, then things would change. And right. there's a lot of pe- black people who think they would change for the worse if, you know, there were no, there were no police there were no cops. Right. And, and I think I think that is the organizational challenge is like, how do you how do you talk to your neighbors in a way that um, draws out what they think, first and foremost, you know, talk to those pe- the people in those areas and see what they want. But I think what most people want, you know, black, white, wherever they live, is to feel safe in their homes, on their streets and in interactions with police officers. Right. And those are not those don't have to be in conflict. Those don't have to be irreconcilable right. uh, goals as a society. We can have all of those things. We should have all of those things. And right now, the only association in most people's minds with public safety is, oh, cops, right? And so that's part of where, that's part of what you have to figure out is how do you help people see, how do we help each other see that there is a way that doesn't involve um sending armed patrols into certain neighborhoods, that there's a way that we could have public safety without that. I, I would just, and I, I totally hear your point about defund, and I, I've had actually a lot of these conversations, so I have a lot of sympathy for that, but I, at the same time, I would, I personally would defend the slogan just on the, on the basis of being pretty clear. I mean, part of why there's these asterisks and people sometimes have to say, well, that's not really what I meant, is that there's a an internal division within the movement, right? Some people really do mean, I don't want police. I want a world without police. And some people just mean, I want better police. I want cops who are better trained and more humane or whatever. I'm much more on the side of, I don't want police. I, mean, I want a world where people are safe, but we don't have police, but we're nowhere near that world, right? That's a very far, it's a very far away world right now. Um, and that's the point that's like how you you don't get there overnight you have to kind of like build in the direction of that world so first you have to be on the same page about what the actual demands are i think uh before you decide about slogan but to me it's not again i mean i don't i'm not attached to the words in terms of like oh i would never vote for someone who didn't say defund i don't think that's an important line to draw i just think we have to be clear about what we want and what we think is reasonable, what we can get. And there's always a dual track on the left, right? There's always, what do you want in the long-term best case scenario? You can wave a wand and have the world we want. And what what are the intermediate steps we can take to get there? What are mm-hmm. we willing to settle for, I guess, right? 
Right. I mean, another, so another slogan that I think is a good slogan is Medicare for all. And because that's easy to understand because everyone mm -hmm. knows what Medicare is. And, you know, like for a long time, like single payer was the term. And even as I, a college graduate, I didn't understand what that meant. I thought it meant like I like single payer, like I'm the one paying like, or something like that. Um, so Medicare for all is, is a much improved slogan and rallying cry in that respect. At the same time, Medicare for all seems extremely difficult to make happen. Whereas defund the police, I think, is a bad slogan and also extremely difficult to make happen. <laughs> so you you would want sort of like, you know, if you're if you're chasing a dream that is like, you know, going to be extremely difficult, you you want to make it something that at least, you know, more than 50 percent of the people agree with. And I don't think more than 50 percent of Americans want to defund the police because, yeah, they, the average person likes the cops, I think. You know, and, yeah, and... I mean, that also depends on how you ask the question. Like all of these things, this re really depends a lot on the framing. And people will say, well, I don't think, I, do, do I think the police budget should be three times the budget for public education in our city? No, I don't think that. So, right. I mean, you know, I think, and I think Biden, Biden explicitly said, we're not defunding the police. And I think he said, we're going to fund the police or refund the police, right. stuff like that. Yeah. And I mean, the real thing is, like I feel, so, for my opinion, cutting through both sides, the real thing is you want effective policing. You want cops who are preventing crime and <laughs> tracking down and arresting criminals who have committed a crime. And that probably means, unfortunately, like you need to hire better people to be police officers and they need better training and they need to not be trained to like reach for their gun at the first moment. Mm -hmm. um, so you need like a higher, like a, better class of people coming in to be a cop because like you d I well, think that's, that's sort of that's the Bernie that's Bernie's position right I mean I think Bernie Bernie is not a defund the police guy and what he has said pretty consistently is we need to pay police more yeah and they should have a college degree yeah that that's what he believes I I I actually don't it's a rare rare point of disagreement between <laughs> me and Bernie and, and I don't I don't want cops I don't think they're good i think ultimately we should have a world where we don't have to arm certain a small number of people to quote unquote keep order in certain neighborhoods i don't i i mean i understand why that's the only way that people think about it right now but i that's sort of not my ultimate vision mm -hmm. and that it's again that's a division on the left between people who see a way of uh really overhauling and really improving the police and people who just really don't want um police and want to keep each other safe, keep their own communities safe. Uh, I mean, those yeah. are tough. Those are tough uh, questions and conversations. I will say, though, really quickly on the police point, that police almost never, almost never stop crime while it's happening. Right? What they do is, in theory, is you report it to them, and they go and try to find the guy after the fact. So this idea that somehow you're more vulnerable. Um, you know, uh, let's just say as a woman, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm going to be raped because there's a, when was the last time the police stopped a rape? I mean, it's very, very, very rare. You, you, you're attacked, you have a, something terrible happen to you, and then you call them and maybe they help you, maybe they don't, or maybe they help you years later. You know, it's just, yeah. it's, I mean, I, I, I think the standard level for police, I mean, it's, it's so complicated. So one issue is America has more guns than humans. Right. And, Absence of massive cultural change, this right. is going to be the case for decades. And we're a gun crazy society, and it's like 
a national mental illness that we love guns more than we love people. So law-abiding citizens and criminals alike have guns often on their person. So any agent of trying to like break up any like dispute that's happening or something, they probably, they're going to want to have a gun too, because the people in the dispute very likely have a gun. And this leads to a lot of problems. So it's like the wide availability of handguns in America is sort of the root of this issue. And if I could snap my fingers and all handguns disappeared, then that would be a much better uh, life for, for America. But like gun confiscation is never going to happen. And I think it, it will take some sort of cultural change of being like, oh, these things are horrible. And it'll, I mean, I saw a headline today about a man who was killed because he was driving with his hunting rifle in the car and his dog in the car and the dog stepped on the rifle, shot, shot the man in the back and he died instantly. Oh, um, so that's, that's America. Dogs are killing um, their owners with guns. Like we're such a gun crazy society. And I think this is horrible, but it's as long as that is the case, the cops are going to have to have guns. And in most of, you know, in Europe, people don't have handguns. And so right. the, cop, the cop can just have a billy club or something. Right. That's, that's enough. So that's one issue. I mean, sort of the other is like, the real problem with the cops, like globally, is either the cops are incompetent, corrupt, or are criminals themselves. So in, you know, country X, a crime has been committed against you. What do you do? If you go to the cops, maybe the cop, like maybe the cop's brother is the one who committed the crime and the cop is covering for his brother, or the cop wants $100 to even take your statement because he's on the make, or he's just a lazy guy who sits in his office all day long and never does anything. So you know, those are all bad. And like the, the weird problem in America is like our cops are doing too much in some instances, like chasing right. people who don't need to be chased and then shooting at them. Whereas, you know, in some developing country, the cops are just like essentially an, an armed gang or something and they extort money from, from the populace. Right. Um, so that, that's bad too. And, you know, and in that like state of affairs, maybe like it's be sort of like how some people in Afghanistan prefer the Taliban because at least they sort of like meted out justice versus the, um, you know, the corrupt yeah. Afghan state that America helped build that didn't do anything at all. and just like would shake people down for, for money and stuff like that. So it's like, well, at least the Taliban will like, if you know, if someone is raped, maybe the Taliban will like go and kill the rapist or something. Um, you know, no, just that's like some sort of rough justice that's being meted out or something. Whereas right. the corrupt police are not doing anything at all or are actively stealing <laughs> committed crimes. So like we don't have that problem in America. That we're somewhat lucky that we don't have that problem. But we have this whole other suite of problems. I don't know. I think you're inevitably going to have some armed officers of the state that are interacting with people a lot. And if those people were like better trained and better paid and taught how to de-escalate situations better or something. It's, it's a very thorny problem. So, Hey, yeah. I'd, I'd take it. I mean, I'd take, <laughs> if we actually did any of that, I'd be, I'd be delighted, but we're but that, <laughs> like decade, decades of reform efforts have really clearly failed. Right. I mean, there've been since the sixties, um, there've been, there's been pressure to train them better to do more diversity on the force, get, you know, have, uh, raise the requirements for for becoming a police officer, and that really hasn't worked. So I think that I mean that's where a lot of that rage came from in, mm -hmm. in the summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's. Um, so you know your book came out before the election, and how 
how did you see the individuals and sort of the groups and forces that you've talked about playing out in this past election? And especially one person, I'm almost surprised you didn't mention it. Maybe he just wasn't really on the scene yet was Fetterman, um, who seems like the closest. I don't, I, he's not squad and he's not a socialist, but he's sort of the closest thing. And he's in the Senate now and will be for six years. Um, and did have a lot of, I don't know, he seemed to, in his person, merge populist, um, left, and also just because he's this hulking, like, scary-looking guy. <laughs> he's, you know, he couldn't be tagged as, like, some weak on crime, defeat liberal sort of thing. And and he beat, of course, uh, Dr. Oz. Um, yeah, so how did you, what did you think about how things played out in the last election? I mean, it was um, it was pretty exciting. It was much better than any than anyone on the left, very broadly speaking, and I, including just sort of mainstream Democrats. Uh, I think way better than than anyone on the left could have hoped is how those elections went. Um, I, you know, Fetterman specifically, I think he lucked out in terms of his opponent, mm. who was just a uniquely unlikable, ridiculous um, figure. Yeah. At, who had no connection, you know, no real connection to the state or the people in it. Um, that was certainly helpful. I mean, they put up this this uh, sort of slate of absolute cretins on the Republican side, like people yeah. with no. So, I mean, speaking of, of candidate, candidate quality. Right. I think that was a real problem for them that they had. Uh, was it Blake Masters and yes. Arizona who's basically like a creepy robot and. <laughs> Just a bunch of obvious psychos. Yeah, and the guy in Georgia, you know, the fo former football player's name is escaping right now, um, who did Herschel Walker. Right, Herschel Walker, yeah, who exactly. was like one of the worst, you know, personal candidate bi biographies. I mean, he... Herschel Walker, who I, I and I'm saying this in all sincerity, I think may actually be brain damaged from years on. You know, yeah. I mean, years of football, we know what that does to a brain. Like, it's not, it's not good, and he didn't yeah. seem quite uh, competent or able to to even be there. So I, they picked uniquely bad candidates. That was helpful. Um, yeah. And that was, I mean, that was Trump. I mean, those people were all Trump endorsed and right. were somewhat in the Trumpian mold, especially Dr. Oz as a reality TV huckster right. <laughs> um, exactly. with no, you know, no previous political experience. Um, and the, the fourth one of that bunch would be um, JD Vance, who unfortunately did win, but, right. but, but those four, were all sort of the Trumpiest, I guess Carrie Lake, but she was running for governor. They were sort of the Trumpiest candidates and most of them lost. So that was good. So, yeah. And abortion. I think abortion did help. That, uh, yes. And that was a huge thing as well as the, the abortion ruling. Um, but there wasn't like a, and you know, you can't expect this every cycle. There wasn't like an AOC like figure or a Bernie like figure that really people on the left were rallying around or, or was there? I mean, I think you're right that the closest to that was Fetterman, um, who's sort of, in some ways, a Bernie crowd, although I don't think he would embrace the label and he kind of backed off on on certain associations with Bernie. But people learned a lot from Bernie, whether they credit him for what they learned or not. You know, it's it's, it's clear who who took notes on his campaign. I mean, I actually think Fetterman's, um, a lot of his appeal was just that he seems like a regular guy, right? He walks around in those silly cargo shorts or whatever, right. and he's not like, uh, not putting on airs, not, doesn't seem, doesn't project an attitude of I'm better than you. Just right. seems like some guy in your neighborhood or something. Mm -hmm. um, 
And people like that, you know? I mean, they like that. They kind of project that onto Trump, which is so weird because he's such a strange, like, he's so obsessed with being rich and with gold-plated this and that. And right. he does clearly think he's better than people, but but still people have this um, perception of him as as you know, down to earth. And I think that's partly because he spe- he says what he thinks, right? No matter how crazy it is or how yeah. how poorly thought out. And and there there's something to that authenticity. And that's not even um, you know, that no side has a monopoly on that really. Like with the right has has those people too, that if you can seem folksy and approachable and also like you're saying what you mean what you actually think in the moment those are those are big big advantages right let's see so in the last chapter of the book you talk about in india walton is that her name um, yes yeah. who ran for mayor in buffalo which is where you're from That's and right. um and can you tell her story and what lessons you know can be taken from the fact that she did not become the, the mayor of buffalo so a lot of things happen in that race. Um, you know, India Walden is somebody I would describe as as being a really great candidate in the way we've been talking about for the last um, few minutes about, you know, she she's from Buffalo, born and raised there. Her family's there. She has that authenticity. She has that compelling life story. She was uh, very young, became a mother very young, I think, at I believe at 14 and you know, raised kids on her own, and really understood the struggles of uh, everyday struggles of a lot of people in that city. Buffalo has very high poverty rate, has an extremely high child poverty rate, a lot of problems in the city that she was able to to really speak directly to. Mm-hmm. So and, I think and she had no, like she had never run for anything before, or like she, she had not. No, she, she was, was essentially a, a regular person who was yes. challenging yeah. the the sitting mayor who had been there like three terms right and i'm not sure exactly of the whole timeline of this but she i mean she certainly had institutional support from the working families party i don't know if they actually reached out to recruit her or how exactly she decided to run but she did have those traits and that and this really um just a really compelling personal story now what happened in the race is that she won the primary it was really shocking to a lot of people uh Nobody saw it coming. I, I was shocked, actually, that she won the primary. It's a very low turnout um, primary. People really don't didn't bother to vote. So that's part. I mean, which is partly how AOC won as well, right? If you don't, mm-hmm. if it's a low turnout race, you only have to swing, you know, a couple hundred people or a thousand people, whatever it is. That's that's a much easier thing. Then in Buffalo, what almost always happens when you win the Democratic primary is that you win the general because it's a democratic town, it's a union town, um, and that's just historically how it's always worked. What happened in this case is that the incumbent, Byron Brown, who is still the mayor now, uh, Buffalo's longest serving mayor, he took a lot of Republican money, he colluded with a bunch of Trump Republicans, and they did everything they could. They did all sorts of dirty things to try to keep her, try to um, bury her in the general. What first he tried to get a third party line. He tried to get an independent ballot line, even though he had missed the petition deadline for that. He tried to get a Trump judge to rule in his favor. Uh, that guy did rule in his favor, and then it was overturned on appeal. All of these sorts of things that, if a left wing candidate did, the 
Democratic Party would would say this is, you know, you're I can't believe they're doing this and it's so awful and they're disrupting democracy or whatever. They did all that stuff. Um, ultimately, he dropped off like thousands of uh, stamps, rubber stamps to people's homes so that they could just because he had to run as a write in candidate. So they were able, apparently that's legal under New York state law. So that everybody got these stamps and they just mm. went and they stamped the thing. Now, Byron Brown also, you know, machine politician, been there for a long time. He controls a lot of jobs in city hall. And people said, were pretty explicit. I have to vote for this guy because he controls my job. Or, you know, I mean, he controlled a certain number of people directly or indirectly via their employment in municipal jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's part of what happened. A lot of stuff happened in that race. It was a crazy and, and fascinating race, but ultimately he, he triumphed in the general election, but he really had to work a lot harder than he was planning to work to, um, to pull that off, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So yeah. So like a machine politician was sleeping on a unknown challenger in the primary she comes out of nowhere, defeats him, and then he throws everything possible mm-hmm. to win in the general. I, I didn't hear about the stamps. That's really interesting. Um, but yeah, so he he kept it. And then I wonder, well, what were the lessons for, you know, the left or insur- insurgents or someone who wants to knock off another like machine standard issue Democrat somewhere in the country? You know, AOC did it. Um, right. I guess I guess because Crowley gave up, um, whereas Brown <laughs> decided to fight. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I think Crowley did just resign himself to it, which actually I give him some small amount of credit for. I mean, he just stepped aside. A lot of these people don't do that. They really go out fighting. I think Crowley right. was was I, on some level relieved that he could take a higher paying job. You know, I mean, just going to cash in as a lobbyist. That's one of the strange things about these people who want to stay in Congress yeah. for life. Is it, it is. seems like it seems like a miserable job, like so fucking boring. Like when they were showing the um, the roll call over and over again of voting for McCarthy, like all the Democrats just had to sit there and say Jeffries. You know, right. like right. like over and over and over again, just sitting in this large room, hours upon hours. It was like no wonder no one wants to do this. It's it's like tedious nonsense. Um, okay, but I what mean. you know were the things that Walton like could have done differently, should have done differently, like or, or was think, it just like the machine power was too much? Well, what I would say, I would say two things. One is that it's going to be a lot harder now. I, I think I say in the book that um, now they've seen us coming, right? So. They understand how AOC won. Uh, they understand kind of how how India Walton won the primary, and that is that's much harder to overcome when they know, when they have a heads up and they are are able to marshal all of the forces and find all of the Republican donors and call up all the rich people in the Democratic Party and say, what are we going to do? Much much harder to beat that. The other thing I would say is that yes, I do have some you know, minor criticisms of of the Walden campaign. And I think that it behooves anyone who's seeking office to really at least have a good lawyer who understands what the hell, you know, New York election law is extremely, extremely arcane and weird. And there's all sorts of bizarre, um, eccentric pieces to it. It's not and there's all kinds of ways to to keep someone off of a ballot or to outmaneuver them in that way. Mm. I don't know why they didn't 
you know, there are a few things they could have done that they didn't do. They didn't get, I might be misremembering some of this. So I take it with a grain of salt, but there was some, something to do with the WFP working families party ballot line. They hadn't, um, gotten it for her because, you know, she wouldn't have been able, she wouldn't have had any other way to, uh, mount a challenge to him really if she had lost the primary. So I think they, they could have been better prepared on their end. And also everything that they did to discredit her, we could have seen coming and we should have seen coming. I mean, there was tremendous amount of mail about how she hates the police. She was going to defund the police, even though she never said that. Uh, he ran television ads, which, which was Byron Brown surrounded by 24 po cops in uniform. You know, that that's the kind of thing that you could see imagine that they might do. And I don't know that we had a really effective, I keep saying we, I wasn't part of the campaign <laughs> in any way, but so I don't know. I mean, I, maybe I'm being unfair. It's quite possible they had all of those discussions and really just did the best they could. But I think that now that we know the playbook on both sides, the left needs to get a little bit um, smarter about anticipating some of these things. Mm -hmm. She couldn't, I mean, it's, it's in no way her fault that the Buffalo News adopted a, a frankly racist um, animus towards her or her campaign and ran like several racist trash articles about mm -hmm. how she like once knew somebody who once was arrested on a drug charge. I mean, you know, I, that the press was really kind of shocking. The local press, um, mm -hmm. their role in that race was shocking. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to beat the establishment. Especially, I mean, yeah. a total outsider trying to beat the establishment. You know, if you had to bet on one side, you're going to bet on the establishment. They have a lot more power and influence. And yeah, just playing the inside game, like, you know, having the best possible lawyer to navigate the intricacies of election mm -hmm. law, like, that's hard for an outsider to do to know who the, you know, if it's your first time running for office, you don't know who the best election lawyer in Erie County is. Um, so there's, yeah, stuff like that. And you don't know how getting on the ballot works. I mean, that yeah, that stuff is deliberately um, confusing, and it's kept it's they make it obscure for a reason. Yeah, I, yeah. New York State does seem to be one of the worst in terms of this stuff. Of and often they have like maybe they're changing this, but like the Super Tuesday or whatever the like um, presidential primary would not be the same day as the like mm -hmm. local elections primaries because right. they want low turnout. Um, so they'll all get reelected. And yeah, it's a, it's a super corrupt New Jersey where I live may beat it in terms of political corruption, but it is a very, New York state is very corrupt as well. Um, okay. We're maybe going towards the end of our time, but I did want to ask you, there's, there's a, another figure out there who I think you mentioned once or twice in the book, but this is maybe an alternate path that young people, people, you know, millennials and younger could take. And that would be mayor Pete, uh, Pete Buttigieg, current transportation secretary. Mm -hmm. And, there was a time in 2019 where Buttigieg had like a moment or something and a lot of people online were like, we need to devote all of our effort to taking this guy down. And, you know, he came to be seen as like the um, teacher's pet who would ask for, you know, <laughs> ask for homework or something, or he's like, and all the stuff about his time at McKinsey and so forth. But there's a lot of people, especially people who are not millennials who see Mayor Pete or transportation secretary pete and they well this is a nice young man he's very clean cut he's very, he's very smart he's very well spoken uh, he's married and has small kids a likable guy um you know maybe maybe this is where we should put you know maybe, maybe this is the next generation not these crazy socialists um you know this this nice young man who went to harvard 
Uh, what do you what do you think about? about I mean, that? I think I think in every cycle we have a Pete Buttigieg. There's always some some young person, young shiny person who's um, often uh, based on identity, right? I mean, his whole thing was I'm sort of progressive because I'm gay. I'm a gay American, and somehow that makes me progressive, which is not, you know, because we are so trained to think of the left in these terms of like, oh, the left means you're pro-women and pro-people of color and pro-gay. And it does mean all of that stuff, but it doesn't mean that everybody who has one of those um, pieces of of identity uh, is a leftist, right? And so I think he wasn't, he was doing that sort of fake progressive, like, and he was very much, I mean, very clearly doing a weird imitation of Obama. I mean, down to the the cadence, right? He mm-hmm. studied his speeches. He was doing the Obama pauses. He was doing Obama metaphors. And he he just wasn't as good at it as, I mean, Obama was the original. Um, I'm a young guy who's talking in a progressive sounding way. And I, am, and I do represent a sort of new hope and a new thing in terms of I'd be the first black president. He was the first black president, you know, and that was compelling at the time in all kinds of ways. But Obama was not a leftist either. And I mean, that's sort of the it depends on what you want. Right. If you're just a mainstream Democrat and you think someone can win, I would say in the case of Obama, you were totally right. In the case of Pete Buttigieg, you were evidently not right. He did very, very, very badly with likely black voters who are an important uh, constituency for the mm-hmm. Democratic Party, obviously. So, you know, if you want just a candidate who can win, uh, sometime, you know, uh, Bill Clinton was that guy. He was young. He was charismatic. He was, <laughs> he sounded, at least sounded kind of different and interesting. And like, he had all these cool new ideas, also not a leftist by any, and by any definition. Right. Um, and that's not just revisionism. I mean, at the time he was not a leftist. Nobody thought right. he was a leftist. Uh, so you have to look at, you know, not just what people say, but what they do and what they, how they vote and what their history is and who their friends are and where they get their money from. And um, to me, Pete Buttigieg was never uh, remotely appealing as a candidate. But if he, if I thought he could have won the presidency, then I would have had some sympathy for people who liked him. I, I never thought he that he was a winner could win and he didn't. So, I mean, he did get himself installed as, as transport secretary and he's doing a great job. I hear the air, <laughs> airlines are, uh, it's so great to fly these days and <laughs> we've got high speed trains and all, you know, I don't know what he's doing in that role, but. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it is. It's interesting that he took that position because it is one where uh, failures are more salient than successes. Um, yes. <laughs> whereas he seems like a very calculating type of person. But although I, I saw something saying that he has moved to uh, Michigan and might run for an open Senate seat in Michigan, or <laughs> people are speculating that. I believe it. Yeah. So that so we might have Senator Pete soon. But yeah. I, but I'm th- you know thinking back to like 2019 and that the very long primary and how it was like. At least, you know, the online portion of it, it was very much like Warren versus Bernie and then other people like rising and then collapsing and Yang and Mayor Pete. And then, um, you know, there's like this war between the Warrenites and the Bernieites when they are 
they were essentially like next to each other in terms of ideology. And then who runs up the open lane is a good old Joe. And, you know, sort of after the initial couple losses runs the table and the whole Bernie versus Warren thing looks like, like just a total waste of time and energy when everyone was ignoring the, everyone underestimated Biden. That does seem to be a characteristic of his whole life is that people underestimate him. Um, that's true. But, I mean, how many other people lost as many times and then became, pre I mean, you know, he's no, not, he, the I, not the loser I thought he was, to put it that way. No. I, okay. And then, okay. So maybe the final thing, how would you, you know, first two years of Biden, then we have the midterm election. How would you, as a socialist, evaluate the, the past years with, with President Biden? Well, and I'll just amend what I just said about, I think that he won, he won in 2020 and I'm, you know, relieved that he did, but he won in 2020 uh, thanks to a unique set of circumstances, right? And I don't think that without a global pandemic, without a crashing economy, I I still believe that he wouldn't have won. But I'm glad, I mean, I'm not glad that, that the economy tanked and that there was a global pandemic, but I am glad that he, uh, that he won. So, you know, the last year's been a real mixed bag. I think that he, um, the left was able to do some things like you were talking about earlier, the Inflation Reduction Act. And that's not that is not nothing. He canceled. What was it? Ten thousand dollars of student debt. That's not great, but it's not nothing. Um, but, and but all of those things, it was tooth and nail. And like, the, you know, canceling the right. debt, there's it's now going to be before the Supreme Court, like anything, you know, any, any major change in America because of our politics and our sclerotic, crazy constitutional system from 200 plus years ago, like trying to get anything done is difficult. Right, right. And I'm and I'm very frankly, just on a personal level. And um, it's not just me, obviously, it's not just me who's affected by this. But I'm pretty angry that we went with a guy that the party went with a guy who not only has never been a champion of abortion rights, but in fact, uh, is responsible in a lot of ways for Clarence Thomas being on the court. So, and anybody who, who read about those hearings, watched them in real time, knows what he did and didn't do. He made a lot of backdoor deals with the Republicans. He suppressed testimony from people who would have supported what Professor Hill said. Mm -hmm. um, and now we have Clarence Thomas and we have the most right-wing court in, in decades, right? And he was terrible. He was always terrible on abortion. And he his response to uh, the Supreme Court ruling what you know, Dobbs was was lackluster at best and really not not in any way adequate to the to the moment and to what is needed. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, overall, I'd say he's been a disappointment. Is he is it as bad as it would have been under Trump? Uh, absolutely not. Um you know, so in, in well, that how, sense, how would you judge it against like Ob first term Obama? You know, I I don't know that I remember enough about first term Obama. <laughs> I mean, I think I think they were similar, right? They made a well, Obama made more explicit promises, I think, to progress. Well, the Affordable Care Act passed. That was the main. It, yes, that, did that was pass. the main thing, and then there was also the Economic Rescue Plan and bailing out Detroit and other things related to stabilizing Joe the Biden economy. did better than Obama on that on recovery money, right? He did. He made more investments in um, pandemic relief than Obama made in saving the economy at that time, right? So I think that's a way in which I, I'm happier with Biden.
but that's I, I think that's a function of history and timing and also movements, right? Movement pressure. Obama did not feel movement pressure. And actually that's right. that's why we have the current moment in a lot of ways, is that a lot of very young, passionate people put their hearts and souls into electing Barack Obama and they were disappointed by him. They said, you know, we thought you were progressive, we thought you were gonna do this and that and fix that, all of these social problems that are now not only still with us, but worse than than ever before in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, a lot of stuff comes out of um, Obama and his successes and failures. And without right. Obama, there's no Trump, I think. And That's right. w- without Trump, probably Biden does not get back into the race or, you know, does not run at age, you know, 72 or whatever. So there's a lot of weird contingencies. I actually, I, I would, I think um, even absent the pandemic, I think Biden would have won. I also think probably any of the other cast of characters would have won as well, including Bernie Warren, Mayor Pete, Marion Williamson, Andrew Yang. <laughs> I, I just thought Trump was really Marion Williamson. You think would have won? I mean, I that would have like been an interesting personal level. <laughs> that would have been an interesting, like you know, matchup for sure because they're such yeah. opposite. I don't know. I don't know personalities, Maybe. but I really thought a warm body with the Democrat, you know, a D next to them would have beat trump absent even absent the pandemic i was thinking this before the pandemic i I thought people were just sick of sick of the bullshit and they wanted to return to a less insane time um so yeah but that will never you know that's an alternate history we'll never know but um okay is there anything else you want to say about the book or the topic in general before we wrap up i guess i just would say the title again the rise of a new left how young radicals are shaping the future of american politics and it is available in a lot of bookstores, also directly from Verso's website. And I'm still writing for a bunch of different people. I'm working on something right now for the New Republic. And I'd also say that I'm really interested in doing more book events and hoping to be in Philly at some point and also uh, Baltimore and DC. And anybody who is interested in doing an event or hosting an event should please um, get in touch. So we'll include the link in the show notes to the Verso, not, we will not include the Amazon link, we'll include the Verso (laughs) link and, but uh, Twitter or personal webpage or anything else you want to point people towards to follow your, your work. Sure. I, I finally have a grown up website. It's just rainalipsits.com. So it's pretty easy to find. And, and my contact information is on there. It's just rainalipsits.gmail.com. Okay. And are, are you on Twitter or? I am on Twitter. You know, I, uh, all the professional advice I've gotten ever has been that I have to be more on Twitter and I, I just cannot make myself do it. I mean, I'm trying, I'm trying, but I hate it so much. And yeah, I, I mean, it, the time may have passed where, <laughs> where being on Twitter <laughs> helps you professionally. Helpful. Yeah. Uh, there definitely was a moment, but that time may have passed. So it's really just like the hardcore dead enders, uh, including me at this yeah. point. So I'm still on there and that's a R Y H C W. And, um, <laughs> And people, you know, people can rate this show. They can review it. They can tell their friends. Um, so thank you, Raina, for coming on. And thank you to all of the viewers and listeners. I guess they're not thank viewers. You. Thank you to all the listeners. <laughs> we'll see you again next time. Thanks so much.